This is Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. An original series by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome as we kick off our fine-tuning series with today's episode, Shoulder to Shoulder. We begin our examination of TuneIn with a look at its most favorable, most positive, most enthusiastic descriptions of John and Paul, respectively. The object of this exercise is to see how Lewison builds his characterizations of Paul and John, and to compare his approach to each. We've chosen 12 passages about John and 12 about Paul. These are all taken from the body text of TuneIn. So for the purpose of this episode, we're sticking to Lewison's own writing, his own word choices, his own phrasing. None of these passages include direct quotes from insiders or interviewees. Now, it was pretty easy to choose the Paul excerpts because aside from these 12, there really aren't any more noteworthy positive passages to be found in TuneIn about Paul. There's a nice word or two here or there, but not much more. It was much harder to narrow down the John ones because there are so very many more than what we've included in this episode. But our aim was to narrow it down to what we feel are the best 12. The most effusive, the most flattering, and most extravagant. Check out our word charts on our website to see how, measured by volume, there's just no contest for who gets the most compliments. John outstrips everyone else by a mile. The chart on our website is the total for the whole book, by the way, so to be clear, that does include quotes from others. But in any case, any way you look at it, there's no numbers argument to be made. John wins. But language isn't about numbers. It's about tone and style and nuance and context. So this episode is going to focus on those aspects, in addition to word choice. When and where does Lewison sound enthusiastic? When does he employ absolutes or hyperbole? When does he really wax poetic? Tunin's prologue concludes with the following two sentences. And so Lennon-McCartney stood shoulder to shoulder as equals, connected at every level, their considerable talents harmonized, 
their personalities meshed, their drive unchecked, their goal in focus. They were a union, stronger than the sum of their parts, and everything was possible. Now, we'd certainly agree with that premise. Our question is, does tune in follow through on this promise? If it wants to tell us Lennon and McCartney are equals in the prologue, then the rest of the book should show us just that. Now, is that the case? Let's look and see. When Madame Pompadour was on a ballroom floor, said all the gentlemen, obviously, the Madame has the cutest personality. And think of all the books about. Okay, let's start off broadly. Let's take a look at Tunin's general character descriptions of John and Paul. These are the closest direct comparisons we found. From page 19, about Paul. He was a funny storyteller and mimic, a cartoonist and able caricaturist. The eldest son of particular parents, Paul knew how to behave socially. John, who'd also been brought up well, bothered less with social niceties. Paul liked to create the best impression and say the right things, exuding a breezy confidence and wanting people to think highly of him. He was charming, sharp, mentally strong, and rarely outmaneuvered. John saw it all and welcomed it. From page 18 about John, Lenin radiated a life force that turned heads everywhere. He was wickedly funny and fast with it. He was abrasive, incisive, and devastatingly rude. And he was musical, literate, and beguilingly creative. Whether painting, conceiving strangely comic poems, or committing cruel drawings and odd stories to the written page, he was a boy beyond convention and control, a lone ranger. He was everything his friends wanted to be and said everything they wanted to say, but wouldn't dare. John Lennon always dared. From page 100, Paul was popular too. Naturally funny, Paul showed a good talent for vocal mimicry by impersonating the masters and drew witty cartoons that were passed around the class for laughs. From page 107 about John, this ultra sharp and edgy youth, this wolf in grammar school blazer, now carrying guitar, was 16 going on 17. Many were repulsed by his attitude and behavior, uncompromising, unpredictable, rude, cynical, sarcastic, anti-authoritarian, quickly bored, but to others he was sensational, a perpetual high-wire act who lived and communicated without a safety net, a faithful friend, generous, honest, gifted, literate, articulate, and hugely funny. He dressed and looked tough and was no stranger to fighting but his hostility was mostly verbal. He could shout louder than anyone else and lacerate with a brevity and wit that took the breath away. 
from pages 397 and 398, describing Paul's brief employment at a coil factory. If Paul's aim was to get back at his dad by finding a position diametrically opposed to his talents, he couldn't have arranged it better. Instead of something suited to his bright mind, artistic flair, neat handwriting, 5 levels and English Lit A level, Paul joined a factory, one among the flat-capped working classes punching the clock. Page 281 about John. John was the definitively gifted yet troubled young man, the mix that defined him. Artistic and sarcastic, literate and cruel, brutal and tender, swift and funny, contemptuous of all pretense. From page 238, George Harrison's timing was almost as good as John's, whose comic timing was just sensational. The match of any great comedian. Okay. So so what are the overall takeaways from these comparisons? Well, I definitely get the impression from these passages that John is a truly extraordinary person and that it was obvious to everyone. Yeah, he turned heads everywhere with his radiating life force. Wow. What this framing says to me is that John is the star of this story. The undisputed star of the Beatles and the person we as readers should revere. He's called faithful, generous, tender, honest, just absolutely a person of exemplary personal character. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt whatsoever that he is the good guy. Yeah, in all the classic ways, he is the hero. But he, he also comes off like intriguingly dangerous in the sexy romantic sense. Well, yes, he's, he's called a wolf and a lone ranger. Yeah, he's complex. He's wickedly funny. He's beguilingly creative, breathtakingly witty. He's called sensational twice, but he's also restless, fearless, tough, ultra sharp, edgy. You know, so not only is he the hero, he's also an anti-hero in the very best sense. Like, complicated, but mm. fascinating and ultimately sensational. On the other hand, Paul is smart and funny and gifted, but apparently not extraordinary. Paul is talented, but John's talents are more varied and more worthy of detailed attention. He's called literate three times in these passages and twice more elsewhere in Tune In. And of course, he is musical. But he also creates paintings, comics, poems, drawings, and stories. In fairness, John is also called rude, and his drawings are mm -hmm. referred to as cruel, but in a way that really just makes him edgy and gives him depth. Yeah, well, he's not just rude, he's devastatingly rude, which to me, like that that turns it into a positive, really. 
<laughs> His rudeness takes the breath away. Yes. And he's the beetle you can't take your eyes off of, which is written about John a couple of times in Tunin. Oh, yes. That he is the beetle that people can't take their eyes off of. Mm-hmm. Specifically on pages 887 and 1178. And as for the word cruel, that word cannot be spun into something good. But here and elsewhere in Tunin, it is either couched inside a list of John's good qualities, his generosity, humor, faithfulness, honesty, or it's part of an otherwise glowing description of how John was beyond convention and control. And how he communicated without a safety net and said everything his friends wanted to say, but didn't dare. So, you know, John may be cruel, yes, but he's only saying what everyone else is thinking, but isn't bold enough to say out loud. Yeah. Also, can we talk about he was everything his friends wanted to be? So all of John's friends watched him being cruel and rude and abrasive and just wished they had the guts to do the same yeah i guess i mean there is something to be said about like you know there's this somewhat of a visceral pleasure of watching somebody do wild behavior that you wouldn't do yourself i mean that's why we love movies about crime so sure there's an element of that but I don't know that that makes it a virtue on John's part. I mean, we're talking about bad impulses that people suppress. So again, I don't know. I don't know that that makes him the hero that Tune In thinks it does. Mm. I mean, just because teenage boys admire certain behavior doesn't mean it's admirable. Not to pick yeah. on teenage boys. I'm just saying they are still maturing. Mm-hmm. And I think some of John's daring could probably be chalked up to a lack of impulse control. <laughs> yeah. I mean, much of it is just being socially inappropriate or rude or cruel to vulnerable groups. Uh, yeah, it's just typical transgressive behavior. Doing and saying taboo things on purpose to make people uncomfortable. Which is not an admirable or even particularly interesting trait to me personally. But even so, even considering how teenage boys can be, writing that John was everything his friends wanted to be and said everything they wanted to say is a lot. Like, so no one, none of John's friends, Ivan Vaughn never watched John picking on people with disabilities in the street and thought, oh that's not great i do really like john though like i i forgive him but that's not my favorite part of john exactly no no every time he thought oh i wish i could be like that yeah everything his friends wanted to be well that also sells his friends really really short so they never wanted to be anything other than john lennon yeah they had no other aspirations in life are you really trying to tell us right now that there weren't parts of john that his friends just tolerated yeah or apparently there weren't things they wanted to be 
beyond what John was already. Like there was nothing they aspired to beyond <laughs> what John Lennon already was at 16. Yeah. Now we're getting into hagiography. Yes, because it's not true. It's not literally true. This is hyperbole. This is poetic license. And to a certain extent, that's fine. If that's how you like to write, then why not? <laughs> but if you only write that way about one of your four subjects, then that is bias. Okay, let's talk about this quote where Lewison describes John as uncompromising, unpredictable, rude, cynical, sarcastic, anti-authoritarian, quickly bored, but to others, he was sensational. Okay, this is a 16-year-old boy he's describing. What does uncompromising mean? Really, what is he, what's he uncompromising about? Is it his fight for equality on behalf of the underprivileged? Because if it's not, then, like, do you just mean stubborn? Right. If it's about hair length and and tight trousers. Stubborn. And also, how is he anti-authoritarian? Like, I will grant you rebellious. That makes complete sense and everything bears that out. But but how do we get anti-authoritarian? Like, you just told us he was uncompromising. And much of this book will be devoted to detailing how much of a powerful unilateral leader he was and how much he values dominance, hierarchy, and machismo. So again, not really getting anti-authoritarian from that. Well, yeah, John not liking grown-ups telling him what to do doesn't make him anti-authoritarian any more than the same trait makes Paul anti-authoritarian. Not that Paul is called anti-authoritarian, to be clear. <laughs> He's definitely framed as just stubborn, excessively so, in fact. But more on that in a future episode. As for Paul, so far this is a comparatively shallow portrait. He has some talents and abilities, and he's popular and funny. Mm-hmm. And mentally strong. Yeah, and, but there's uh, nothing exceptional about him. Well, I mean, those are like objectively positive words, but they're fairly generic. It doesn't really tell us anything about him. About him as a person, yeah. Well, and they're definitely not enthusiastic I mean that this this could be a portrait of Pete Best. I mean, there's nothing about yeah Paul's personality really. I mean, that doesn't tell me anything about a person's personality. It's not a portrait of him. Well, it's definitely not the portrait of a main character, right? It's a portrait of like a bit character. Yeah. <laughs> this passage is almost interesting. Paul knew how to behave socially, liked to create the best impression and say the right things, exuding a breezy confidence and wanting people to think highly of him. I mean, maybe this is laying the groundwork for a deeper exploration of Paul's home life and what made him this way. Those are just descriptions of the surface of this person. Yeah. Well, maybe the surface is all there is when it comes to Paul. Well, that's not possible. <laughs> that's just not possible. <laughs> like it's Human beings don't work like that. He wants to create the best impression and say the right things. That's just like getting along in society, right? Yeah, it's just being polite and nice. 
okay. That's the most interesting thing you could think to tell me about him? Mm. Well, maybe he's trying to suggest something more. I don't know. Well, wanting people to think highly of him makes him sound like Eddie Haskell. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're right. It's true. It's all about how Paul wants to be perceived, not how he is. He knew how to behave socially, liked to create the best impression, say the right things, wanted people to think highly of him. I'm not saying that that's untrue. I'm just saying it's an interesting choice to tell us essentially the same thing about Paul four separate times in the space of a paragraph. (laughs) And the way it's written, to my ears, definitely implies that this is calculated on Paul's part. But, you know, Lewison spent a lot of space on it, so he must think it's very, very central to Paul's character. Well, it, it implies, like, the impression that he wants to create is different from reality. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Eddie Haskell. As unusual, complex, sensitive, and creative as I know Paul is, I do expect more than this very surface take. But maybe we'll get that later in the book. Yeah, maybe you tune in will go on to similarly emphasize other aspects of Paul's character and round him out thoroughly. Do I want you? Oh my, do I, honey? Did I do? All right, let's move on to something slightly more specific. John and Paul at nursery school. From page 87, about Paul. In speak, Paul McCartney was now well-established at Stockton Wood School. If not top of the class, then certainly capable of it. And on page 46. Things came more or less easily to Paul. He was naturally one of the brightest children. Alert, upbeat, smart, gifted, funny. From page 65, about John. Like Richard Starkey at St. Silas, John began in the nursery class. Unlike Richie, John saw clearly how he stood out from the crowd. He was exceptional, being advanced at reading, writing, drawing, and painting, as well as thinking creatively and communicating. But this gifted and lively mind was set in perpetual whirl by the adults around him. So the contrast there is less stark than it is in the previous passages that we read. Mm -hmm. But the description of John is notably more effusive. He is exceptional, advanced, and gifted compared to Paul being bright and gifted. We are also told the specific disciplines that john was advanced in and it's a longer description there's more information in it so i can only conclude that john must have been a more successful or impressive student as a young child like he must have gotten higher marks than paul on his work or more glowing reports from his teachers or something of course it's not hard to believe john was advanced i'd assume he was even without sourcing But Mm -hmm. an assumption 
isn't enough to support this much of a disparity in a historical biography that is about both of these people. So I have to presume that Lewison uh, has documentation that he chose not to share. Mm. Mm -hmm. If not, then again, this would be a case of giving John more space simply because you think John just deserves more space. Um, there's one other thing of note. We are told that things came more or less easily to Paul, whereas John's gifted and lively mind was set in perpetual whirl by the adults around him. So off the bat, we've set up the contrast of Paul's easy life versus John's hard one. More on that subject in the Shells and Barriers episode. Now let's look at how Paul and John are described in relation to their peers, including their music buddies. From page 100 about Paul at the Liverpool Institute, in his first year, Paul was middling, ranked around 12th, an impressive achievement considering his classmates were among the city's brightest boys, and he was always one of the youngest in his year. On page 114, where Tunin is describing Paul learning guitar chords from his friend, Ian James, it says, Paul was a very fast learner, a musical natural. Ian watched as Paul whooshed past him in no time at all. Now, John was a pretty disastrous student at Quarry Bank Grammar School, but Lewison mm. highlights his other strengths. From page 17, John sang and played guitar forever the front man but he was first last always a rocker and his group was now charging headlong in that direction newspaper ads for the dances they played were already calling them rock and skiffle though actually it was rock all the way and later when john now 17 and clearly the coolest kid on the block generously invited paul to join them the 15-year-old was so keen to make himself indispensable that deceiving dad was but the flimsiest of obstacles. From page 160 about the early quarrymen, John was the leader, just as he'd been in his every activity since infancy. Page 198, Ivan Vaughn admired his gang leader's many talents and paid full respect. Just to be clear, John is the gang leader. And on page 257, TuneIn describes John striking up a friendship with uh, art college classmate Tony Carricker. Tony was another rock and roll fanatic, and he introduced John to a huge amount of music via his record collection, full of rarities, which Tony had accumulated through great skill and effort. Lewison then writes on page 258, though John was indebted to Tony for broadening his musical horizons, Tony gained most from the friendship. A very loving quote from Tony follows, wherein he calls himself John's acolyte. And then Lewison continues, all the friendships in John's life were like this. He was the leader, respected, and gratefully followed by others. All John's friendships were like this. 
They were all like his friendship with Tony character. So everyone, not just Tony, everyone who is friends with John gained most from the relationship. I guess so. So I guess John always gave more than he received. And also, everyone who was friends with John was his acolyte and gratefully followed him as their leader. I think Lewison is definitely framing that as a compliment. But if you really think about it, if that really were the case, that's sad for John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds exhausting. Yeah, to always be giving more than you're getting back. And how monotonous would that be for John? Mm. I don't know about you, Daphne, but I I don't have any friendships where there's There's a leader. leader. I I mean, any, any. That's just a very strange thing to say. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a strange take on the nature of friendship. There are many, many more very enthusiastic passages about John's supremacy and leadership and dominance and authority in TuneIn, which are glowing and laudatory enough to have been included in this episode. But ultimately, it was an embarrassment of riches. We had too many. (laughs) And so we had to make a whole separate episode for those. So we will just leave it for now. And we will save the rest for our later Lennon episode. Fairy tales can come true It can happen to you If you're young at heart Moving on to our next two passages of John and Paul at age 14 and some of their earliest writing attempts. From page 141, Lewison describes one of Paul's earliest works, a song called Suicide, And he writes, Paul had about 40 seconds of music, and it didn't get any further. He realized the key word suicide presented a rhyming dilemma. The best he had was ruin I. But though the words wanted work and didn't get it, it was a charming little tune, a dance band piece with a dash of modernity, light, engaging, and original quite exceptional for a first attempt by a boy on the cusp of 14. Now from page 120. A poem handwritten by John for Mimi on the day of Uncle George's funeral shows him far from heartless about her loss and fearlessly open in condemnation of her sisters, his mother included, for insufficiently stirring themselves in her hour of need. This sincere poem, lucid, forthright, and notably mature for a 14-year-old, gave comfort to Mimi, and she kept it always. Lewison then recounts the poem in full and continues his analysis. It also has one other revealing dimension, because the third line, if they should survive to 105, is adapted from Frank Sinatra's Young at Heart, a 1954 British and American hit. In places, the cadence of John's piece just about fits the meter of Sinatra's recording, too. This poem for Mimi is the first example of John Lennon expressing his feelings 
through popular song. So this poem is the first example of John Lennon expressing his feelings through popular song. I'm not quite sure what to make of that. The fact that John lifted a line from a popular song, or sorry, adapted, means that this poem is actually a song. And so John Lennon wrote his first song at 14. I don't know because it just says expresses his expressing his feelings through popular song, which you could argue that anybody passionately singing a popular song is doing. Yeah, I mean, agreed. Lots of singers who don't write original material interpret music in a way in which they are expressing their feelings. Absolutely. So I don't know if that's lewison's point or if he's implying that this is akin to songwriting hmm. which would be odd but in any case i like being able to read this poem and i think lewison is right to give john credit for writing a mature and sincere poem during a dark time in his and mimi's life mm -hmm. yeah agreed moving on to the passage about Paul's song, Suicide, Lewison's commentary was generally flattering, although I'm also struck by the fact that there is no commentary whatsoever on the dark lyrics mm. or the theme to suicide or any suggestion at all that Paul might be expressing anything about his own thoughts or feelings. Well, TuneIn doesn't even provide the lyrics or give a hint as to the plot of the song, let alone any further commentary. I think on its face, if any 14-year-old writes a song called Suicide, I think that's probably cause for concern, but at least it's notable and worthy of a closer look. Well, right. If you're analyzing this person as an artist and their first written on the cusp of 14 song is called suicide it's it's not just that lewison doesn't give it any attention the way he wrote this actually obscures the fact that this is a very dark song because he calls it for god's sake light engaging and original mm -hmm. a charming little tune like what even he specifically calls it light yeah, it, it feels a bit tone deaf, for sure. Especially since Paul McCartney, for the rest of his career, almost always expresses himself indirectly through his music. Paul also returns to this song, Suicide, at one of the lowest points in his life in 1969 at the time of the Beatles' breakup suggesting it might have some emotional significance to him well and it's also paul's first character song his first song telling a woman's story that's important yeah even if it's not an expression of anything going on in paul's emotional landscape or psyche it's still interesting you know that that almost makes it more interesting why why is he drawn to telling someone else's story? 
Well, and why is he telling the story of a woman's poor choice in a man? Yeah, a controlling and overbearing man. Being like suicide. That's a pretty bold musical <laughs> statement. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's not like that's not a staple of the music Paul was listening to at the time. I like that Lewison points out Paul realized the key word suicide presented a rhyming dilemma or like a challenge. But I think Paul's solution is pretty inventive, actually. Agreed. My main concern is what is Lewison's problem with that rhyme exactly? It's perfectly good to me. Does he not like that it rhymes a long word with two short words? Because that's standard practice. Or is it that there's punctuation in like the middle of the rhyme? So I'd is the last word of the line, but the first word of a phrase that runs into the following line. Does he find that clumsy? Because that's called sejura and enjambment, two basic poetic devices you can find in innumerable works including classic poetry since forever. I mean, it does make the flow a little off kilter, but mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah, me too. He's just described her limping along and the melody evokes that. I think it adds interest and urgency mm -hmm. lyrically and rhythmically. Yeah, and that's something that Paul does from time to time pretty well, but... Most discussions of Beatles songs, Daphne, don't take things like that into account. Well, that's true. Also, suicide may have presented a rhyming dilemma, but Paul actually came up with three rhymes for it. Mm. Mm -hmm. Ruin-eyed, to his side, and doin'-eye. Why don't we go ahead and read the first verse, which is yeah. what Lewison reports Paul had at this time. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. If when she tries to run away and he calls her back, she comes. If there's a next time, he's okay because she's under both his thumbs. She'll limp along to his side, singing a song of ruin. I'd bet he says nothing doing. I, I, I'd call it suicide. I didn't mean to, sit, to, to read it like a slam poet there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's dark. Well, what world are we living in where a child writes a song about a mistreated woman who will be committing suicide if she goes back to her dirtbag lover? And we're like, oh, there's nothing to see here. <laughs> You know, again, comparing this to the poem that John wrote, Lewison explicitly tells us there that John is expressing himself and not just expressing himself. He's fearlessly open. He's far from heartless. He calls the poem sincere, lucid, forthright, and notably mature. Yeah. And he provides the entire poem in the text of Tune In for the reader. Which is fine. That's good and, and appropriate. Absolutely. Yeah, I like reading it. And of course, this does represent an important moment in John's life. And it gives us insight into his grief during a traumatic childhood experience. He's lost his uncle 
his surrogate father, and the poem speaks to his relationship with Mimi and the tension between Mimi and his mother, all of which is very relevant. Yeah, it's definitely relevant to and revealing about John's home life. But then when it comes to Paul McCartney's first song, which is highly relevant to Paul McCartney's development as a songwriter, plus or minus anything that might be going on in his home life, Tudin doesn't even mention the subject matter. Yeah. He gives us two words from the lyrics, not even a full line, merely for the purpose of putting them down. Yeah. Yeah, for another comparison to John, the first song lyrics John remembered writing a single line from a song with no known title or melody that was never recorded and which John talked about exactly once still get more coverage than suicides. On page 230, Tunin quotes John as saying in an interview once, I did one which had the line, my love is like a bird with a broken wing, which <laughs> I was very proud of. Is there any uh, editorializing on John being proud of his, of his work? No, no, it's just, you just have the quote there. Oh, okay. And then, Hello Little Girl, John's first fully remembered song, gets a 47-word synopsis of the lyrics. You know, the the girl I love doesn't love me back plot. But yeah, no commentary for suicide. Well, what is there to comment on, I guess, is his thinking? It's as if Paul has no inner life. Yeah. No feelings, no thoughts. I mean, is it Paul's best song? No, I think everybody would agree, including Paul, that it is not his best song that he ever of wrote. Course. <sighs> but it's a very interesting work for a man, let alone for a 14-year-old boy. Yeah. And it lays the groundwork for a lot of Paul's future songs. It's about a character, a woman. There's darkness lurking underneath a jaunty tune. And there's also, there's mention of the woman running away, interestingly, because that's a theme he returns to at least twice in his career. In She's Leaving Home and Only Mama Knows. Well, and you didn't have to do two pages on it, but like make of the course points not. that we just made. How hard was it to make those points? <laughs> we, I mean, we've got unusual subject matter a third party perspective yeah a woman's story a downtrodden woman and strangely dark subject matter with a jaunty tune it shouldn't be hard yeah i really don't care for mr lewison's editorializing here or his obvious disinterest this kind of thing is the reason i, I just have no patience for the mccartney's a substandard lyricist received wisdom because it's become a foregone conclusion and it, it prevents people from looking deeper. When certain tropes are constantly reinforced, it takes a lot of work to undo and rethink them. That's what we're doing here. That is the point of this series. Yeah. Well, I Yeah, I've got a baby. Why me be 
All right, let's talk about musical talent. Now, this is where one could argue that Lewison maybe balances out all of that lavish praise of John's supreme excellence because he describes Paul as technically more musically talented than John. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say Lewison doesn't also praise John's songwriting. John's first few songs are variously described as remarkably catchy, appealing, and direct. Interesting. Corny, but tender, never cloying or syrupy. Literate, a diamond in the rough, and a treat. Those are from pages 230, 485, 855, and 856. But obviously none of that is a patch on what we've been reading about John to you so far. John gets way better than that. But for Paul, music is really the one area where TuneIn praises him. If not enthusiastically, then efficiently. So let's get into it. From page eight. Paul had much to offer and John had seen it. Paul had a great musical talent, an instinctive and untutored gift. He played piano and was a confident and characteristic guitarist who always knew more chords than John and was much better at remembering words. At 13, before rock and roll changed his life, Paul composed two catchy piano tunes, dance band numbers, like those his dad played around Liverpool. Now, we've already shared TuneIn's description of one of those catchy piano tunes, Suicide. Let's look now at the second of Paul's catchy piano tunes. The music to what will become Sgt. Pepper's When I'm 64. On page 142. Again, this was an exceptional achievement for a young teenager, a beginner. He felt so too. Mindful that no one else in his orbit was writing songs, Paul keenly played them to people, requesting their opinion. Yet as much as he enjoyed their compliments and admiration, any perceived criticisms stuck in his craw. Paul is then quoted as saying, It sounds a bit like a hymn was one of the damning things people said about some of my early numbers. So, we find it notable that while Lewison does praise these early efforts of Paul's and calls them achievements, at least for a young teenager, a beginner. Right. Even so, it still goes out of its way to immediately find fault, arguably. With the lyrics, in Suicide's case, or in When I'm 64's case, with Paul's own perception that, yes, it was an achievement and that he didn't like criticism. I mean, this is one positive sentence followed by four negative sentences that have nothing to do with the actual song, by the way. So what are those early pieces? Exactly. I I'd like to know more about these hymn-like early pieces that Paul wrote. Well, yeah, he can't be talking about suicide. Nope. Or the When I'm 64 melody. Nope. Those aren't hymns. Okay, so Lewison writes, like I call it suicide, the second piece by his son possibly didn't extend further than verse and chorus but its tune was another quality dance band piece 
much like Jim Max Band would have played. I think that's a little ungenerous because personally, I don't think when I'm 64 sounds like a 1930s dance band number at all. Be, you know, if, if you're talking about like parlor music. Yeah, Tin Pen Alley. Maybe a little me, bit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's more yeah. in that vein. To me, it sounds it sounds more like a show tune than a I agree. big band number. I agree. But in any case, When I'm 64 is a pretty distinctive piece of music. Like, is it really much like something that Jim Max Band would have played in the 40s or 30s? Oh, that's a good question. And it sounds like a hymn obviously has nothing to do with when i'm 64 either so why did he right. include that like what is the point well lewison provides a footnote yes the footnote indicates that paul's quote is from beatles anthology page 18 and this is what paul says as kids we went to sunday school my mom liked to see us go we didn't do much else in the way of religion of course, everyone did the usual things like sing the hymn at school assembly in the morning. I grew to like a lot of hymns that way. When I started writing, I remember asking people, what does this sound like? How do you like this song? And they'd say, well, it sounds a bit like a hymn. It was one of the damning things people said about some of my early numbers. <laughs> okay. So the placement of that footnote might make a reader think that Lewison is citing a source for his having written that Paul liked admiration and compliments, but that any perceived criticism stuck in his craw. Mm -hmm. However, Phoebe just read the source for that footnote, and he doesn't say anything like that. Nope. Perhaps the mere fact that Paul remembered the feedback at all indicates to Lewis and that it stuck in his craw although reading the full quote I can't tell if damning is tongue-in-cheek Paul doesn't sound annoyed or disturbed to me mm -hmm. I, I think he's just humorously commenting on his earliest writing attempts and what influence church music may have had on it so to be clear this had nothing to do with suicide or when I'm 64. So it appears that Paul not liking criticism was just a point Lewison wanted to make. And so he took the opportunity here. He pulled this quote from Anthology to establish that young Paul did sometimes receive feedback that was not 100% enthusiastic. And then he opined that that criticism stuck in paul's craw yeah so that's what i meant when i said tunin went out of its way to immediately find fault i'm talking about its use of that anthology quote from paul on page 178 Lewison describes the song in spite of all the danger and writes though the debt to the Elvis Presley song trying to get to you is clear it's still an original number and an interesting attractive one at that written by a boy of 15 a fantastic achievement okay so that one's good 
yeah, yeah, that's just nice and positive. Very nice. Uh, on page 428, about the Beatles in Hamburg. Playing up to 38 hours a week added greatly to Paul's natural flair and talent, confirming him as easily the Beatles' best pianist. John was self-taught to a pleasingly basic level, and George could pick out some chords. But Paul was now just like his dad, unable to read music, but a fine, confident, and inventive player. Yeah, that's that's good, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And finally, starting on page 911. Paul's bass is strong on my Bonnie. He'd been desperate to avoid the instrument for three years. His real experience of playing it extended to perhaps three weeks, and he was using a new and not yet familiar guitar. Taking these factors into consideration, this was a virtuoso performance, the mark of a naturally gifted musician. He didn't play single notes, but melodically inventive runs, while at the same time singing energetic harmonies and emitting rhythmic yelps. For a beginner to perform these disciplines simultaneously is difficult, but Paul had them under command. He'd have been the first to say he had much to learn as a bass player, but he'd already found a way to sound very good. So those are positive and complimentary descriptions. We got one virtuoso performance for a beginner bass player, and one exceptional and one fantastic achievement for a young teenager, a beginner. Yeah, they're definitely positive. Um, they're pretty boilerplate. I mean, they're just giving him credit for the things that he does objectively very well. Well, yeah, you can't write a Beatles biography and not call Paul McCartney a talented musician. Mm -hmm. um, and talented is far and away the descriptor Lewison uses most about Paul. He uses it 14 times for Paul versus nine times for John. However, John is frequently described as artistic, creative, literate, and inspired, which Paul is not. Check out our word search chart on our website, anotherkindofmind.com, to see a detailed breakdown. Plug. Plug. <laughs> <laughs> and these passages don't sound begrudging. Like he, no, no, he no. definitely gives him his props as a talented person, but he but he never mm -hmm. really writes about Paul with enthusiasm or warmth. What we're looking at here is the difference in the words that Lewison repeatedly uses for John versus Paul. So yeah, he does dutifully report what Paul is good at, and he uses words like achievement and talent, which are positive. Um, but it's framed more like he's giving a grade, just reporting on how Paul did on his project, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. John always inspires bigger words, bigger emotions, <laughs> bigger reactions. Yeah. Bigger paragraphs. I mean, there's by volume, again, there's a lot more. Yeah. But the tone is also very, very different. Yeah. And if John simply inspires greater enthusiasm and warmth in Mr. Lewison than Paul does, that's fine. Sure, of course. He's a person with opinions like anyone else. But hopefully we can agree that the amount of attention and effort each Beatle deserves in a definitive history should not be dependent on how much affection 
the author has for each man yes but in any case tunin does give paul credit for being a very good musician returning to tunin's portrayal of paul's talents it's notable that the overwhelmingly most common word used to describe those talents in these excerpts that we read is natural the word was used by lewison five separate times in the passages that we shared and in total throughout the book paul's abilities are called natural a total of nine times compared to john's being called natural three times paul's musical talents are also called instinctive native and twice untutored now it's hard to argue that the word natural is an insult or an attack well sure but this may be a subtle or even unconscious way to devalue paul's particular gifts what do you mean by that well natural talent is a phrase that is for instance often used in sports commentary it definitely has some problematic overtones in that it's associated with genetic predisposition and instinct rather than intellect and it implies that the individual's gifts are not necessarily earned or even deserved in some cases repeatedly referring to paul as a natural talent also manages deliberately or not to downplay his sensitivity his abundant creativity his tenacity his extraordinary ability to absorb and retain information and very relevant not just to mccartney but to mccartney's role in the beatles his receptivity to diverse and often unusual sources of input now again coincidentally or not none of those qualities that i just mentioned are particularly highlighted let alone praised in tune in but the one thing that is repeatedly highlighted is paul's natural abilities and talents well that's really interesting i wonder though i think i think some people would argue that calling someone a natural talent is actually more of a compliment than saying that someone worked hard or or whatever like some people think of that as being sort of the pinnacle like genius i think people who are just naturally brilliant naturally talented sure so that's that's a little that's a little hard i mean <laughs> kind of depends on the reader and the writer and how paul is discussed in the rest of the book well i agree that depends on the context and how it's used mm-hmm. so uh, for instance natural talents and natural gifts can sometimes have like an otherworldly quality mm-hmm. ironically yeah. even though that's not what natural means that's what supernatural means but sometimes <laughs> it's used to say like oh i'm in awe of somebody's natural gifts meaning like i can't do that so therefore yeah. it comes from some other place that i cannot access yes right? and that makes that person more special yes but i don't think that's how it's used here well i would tend to agree yeah that's just my impression having heard it a million times in other contexts 
natural talent is not an insult, but it can certainly be a backhanded compliment. Mm -hmm. Whether it is in this case is a matter of opinion. Again, Lewison describes Paul's talent as natural nine times, untutored twice, instinctive once, and native once. Perhaps you think that's coincidental. Or meaningless. You know, it is in the eye of the reader, so readers can decide for themselves what they make of that. Okay, let's talk now about Paul and John as singers. TuneIn's account of the famous Walton Village fate provides a direct comparison between Paul and John's respective strengths as performers, particularly their singing. Lewison, of course, reports Paul's backstage performance for John and Friends, and then on the next page, describes a recording that was discovered of John Lennon singing with the Quarrymen that day. TuneIn already told us about John's reaction to Paul's Little Richard voice on page 9. John was floored by Paul's uncanny ability to mimic that screaming and hollering voice. Everyone was amazed by it. Now on to Walton. This passage about Paul's performance is kind of long, but we wanted to read the whole thing to give you the full context, as it is, in our opinion, the most highly favorable and enthusiastic passage about Paul in all of TuneIn. From page 199. Paul suddenly burst into 20-flight rock. Here, right away, was talent, already way out of John's league. And it wasn't just that Paul could get through the song from start to finish, singing with a strong, rocking voice and playing those chords with confidence. It was knowing all the words. Twenty Flight Rock was tricky, and it was another connoisseur's piece. It hadn't made the charts, so anyone who'd learned it had gone out of his way. An expedition made only by the passionate, not something you can fake. After this, Paul went into full exhibition mode, showing off, confident of his ability and aware of his audience. He switched to piano and started belting out his Little Richard routine, yelling alone into the quiet of a cavernous church hall. That constantly thrilling, screaming black voice of Little Richard Penniman was now coming out of Ivan's little mate from Allerton. No matter how much John affected an air of coolness, his insides had to be leaping. Bullseye. Paul McCartney had impressed the guy on whom making an impression was suddenly so vital. He'd set out to do it, and he achieved it. A tad eager, but trying to hide it. His eyebrows raised, probably biting his lip, talking slightly too fast, switched on, and good. Really good. None of the quarrymen could do anything like this. So I do appreciate this excerpt, not just for the positivity about Paul's performance, but for that description at the end of him, biting his lip, eyebrows raised, talking too fast. 
those are the kinds of concrete details that really show an author's interest in their subject as a person. Lewison typically reserves that sort of writerly treatment exclusively for John, and we get a lot of it. For example, we get a cinematic blow-by-blow blow of how John would wink to the audience. Uh, we get some minutely detailed descriptions of several of his cartoons. And on multiple pages, we're given full paragraph descriptions of precisely how John would mock people with disabilities as part of his so-called cripple act, as Tunin calls it. Yeah, yeah. So in this excerpt about Paul's performance, it's nice to read Tunin giving that level of visual detail and painting a portrait of somebody else. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this reads as if Lewison knew this was an important moment in the book, and he put some care into it. And for some listeners, the line way out of John's league regarding Paul's musical talents might be sufficient proof of Tunin's lack of any bias. Maybe for some, that's all it'll take to convince them that there can't possibly be any unfair favoritism toward John in a book that would make such a claim. However, we would encourage you to hold that thought until we've read what Tunin tells us on the very next page about John's singing voice. From page 201, Lewison describes an unearthed recording of the Quarrymen on that fateful day. This passage follows right after Paul is described as showing off his little Richard routine. Here we go. This is the most extraordinary thing about the tape, that it is unmistakably John Lennon. Although inspired by Elvis and Lonnie, he's not attempting to imitate their voices or their style. And more strikingly still, He's not adopting any phony American or mid-Atlantic accent. Singers always start off as impersonators, mimicking whoever made the record they're performing, some perhaps going on to develop their own voice. That John Lennon already had it at Walton, that he was so audibly himself, is the mark of a true original. Not only does he have a great rock voice, it's an honest one. His voice is who he is. So, given the repeated references to Paul's impression of Little Richard and his talent for mimicry, this passage can only really be construed as a contrast to Paul, wouldn't you agree? I completely agree. It comes right after we get that long description of Paul's little Richard impersonation. Paul was very good. None of the quarrymen could do anything like this. Boom, the next paragraph starts setting up how this tape of John came to be recorded. Yeah, his routine or his impression or his mimicry to which all I have to say to that is that Paul is singing Little Richard songs in the style of Little Richard, which if you've ever heard Pat Boone sing Tutti Frutti is like definitely the <laughs> preferable option. It's not as if Paul is singing everything like Little Richard, that would be annoying, but he's not doing that. 
how do we know that if John was capable of singing like Little Richard, he wouldn't have? Well, right. Would he have refused in order to stay true to himself and his true originality? Mm -hmm. Being able to sing a Little Richard song like Little Richard is pretty special, actually. Which even Tune In acknowledges. Paul's displaying his tremendous, very impressive vocal range as well as his showmanship and his audacity. Paul is not a minor bird. It is demeaning to frame his musical abilities and his taste and his choices as nothing more than rote imitation. Paul is referred to as a mimic four separate times in TuneIn, and he's also said to be imitating Little Richard once, and impersonating him three times. We're not saying Paul isn't a good mimic, but with that in mind, listen again to how John is described as specifically not doing any of those things in the Wilton recording, and what Lewison believes that reveals about John. John is not attempting to imitate their voices or their style. And more strikingly still, he's not adopting any phony American or mid-Atlantic accent. Singers always start off as impersonators, mimicking whoever made the record they're performing. Some perhaps going on to develop their own voice. That John Lennon already had it at Walton, that he was so audibly himself, is the mark of a true original. So to me, it is clear that a contrast is being deliberately drawn here. Paul is a talented impersonator. John is honest and a true original precisely because he's not an impersonator. Now, some listeners might not think this comparison of their performances is such a big deal if it occurs in a vacuum. And it is simply about this one day. Yeah, maybe it's not a huge deal, but it does definitely beg the question. Will this contrast of the imitative versus the honest, the derivative versus the authentic, prove to be the beginning of a pattern in TuneIn? So, well, here's my question. Why did you go to such lengths to draw this contrast so boldly in the introduction to them as a team, the day that they met, mm -hmm. if it was not an important point. Like, how could it not be important? <laughs> Why else would you do it? Right. I mean, this is where you put all of your important points. Yes, exactly. And it's not the only time he draws this sort of contrast. On page 202, Lewison specifically writes... John Lennon didn't pick partners easily, but at 15 years of age, Paul McCartney already had enough about him to impress the big league. A boy who believed he was it, and had the ability to back it up, had met another boy who clearly was it. What is that supposed to mean other than... John is the real deal. Paul thinks he's the real deal. He believed he was it. And maybe he's got enough talent to to back it up, which oh, yes. 
if he has the ability to back it up, doesn't that mean he also is it? Well, he has ability and talent. We've established that. Well, and doesn't John... So what's the difference? Like, doesn't John also believe he was it? Uh, No, John is authentic. He's the real deal. He doesn't have to believe. Everybody else believes. He just is. Oh, so this is about other people's perceptions, not about their actual abilities. Like John's itness was already clear to all who beheld him, but Paul's itness was as yet untried. Maybe. Lewison told us he was clearly the coolest kid on the block. Yeah, but does that make you it in terms of being a performer? No, it doesn't. But I guess he, it depends on what it means. Like if he's saying it just in terms of like, is he just talking about stardom? Because he's just saying John was already a star? Well, because he he was not already a star. He was the leader of a teenage skiffle group. I mean, if it's if this is about perceptions, if this is about how John was perceived as being it as a performer, how does Lewison know he clearly was it to other people? Like, did any of the quarrymen ever say anything about John's performance skills? That was just far and away more effusive than what they had to say about Paul's performance at Walton. Not that I could find and tune in. Well, then what are we even talking about here? If there are no reports of John's stage presence and star power absolutely blowing audiences away when he was 17, (laughs) then what is the basis for saying John clearly was it in 1957? Unlike Paul McCartney, who only believed he was it. Daphne, have you heard the tape of The Quarrymen? I have, yes. Okay. It was delightful to hear little baby John on the day he met Paul, of all things. Like, that's very special. Yeah. And he yes. gave me warm fuzzies. Sure. And, like, John is hitting the right notes. And I can hear him. But uh, why don't we go ahead and play a bit of that audio? And the listeners can make up their own minds. It's a great idea. Okay, so this is putting on the style Lonnie Donegan song. And then this is Elvis Presley's uh, Baby Let's Playhouse. that John Lennon already had his own voice at Walton, that he was so audibly himself is the mark of a true original. Not only does he have a great rock voice, it's an honest one. His voice is who he is. Is Lewison supposing that if we had tape of Paul McCartney at age 17, we wouldn't recognize him? Like, we wouldn't know it's unmistakably Paul McCartney? I have no idea. Well, with all due respect, John Lennon is one of the most famous singers of the century. His voice is obviously very recognizable to our modern ears. So marveling 
that he sounds like himself at 17 might be a little hindsight bias all of that said though i don't begrudge lewis in that take like i i enjoy reading people gush about the their, beatles <laughs> about the beatles and about their passions in general yeah it's just that it's held up as that contrast that yes i i have reservations about it but you know again i i like it when lewis is engaged his writing improves and it's more it engages me more it's just unfortunate that it always has to be about john and no one else yes it's too bad i agree with you i agree with you i i don't want to read a dry book about the beatles where somebody somebody's like oh i have to fulfill my contract you know exactly i want to hear somebody who's psyched about the beatles who loves writing about them so i just want the same level of enthusiasm and and love and curiosity about paul mccartney yeah and if you can't summon that up you need to find a way to fake it yeah find a co-writer or write a john lennon biography crazy man crazy crazy man crazy Will this contrast of the imitative versus the honest, the derivative versus the authentic, prove to be the beginning of a pattern in TuneIn? To continue investigating that question, let's circle back to the prologue. We already read you the final paragraph at the beginning of this episode, where TuneIn does call Lennon and McCartney equals. Now we will read the preceding paragraph which compares and contrasts Paul and John in a way we find interesting. Now, this is essentially how we are introduced to Paul and John as individuals and as partners. And as the prologue's final statement, it's presumably something of a mic drop moment, a preview of TuneIn's general thesis. It is, as you will see, very celebratory of John, so it definitely belongs in this episode. However, Paul is described as, well, you'll see. From page 17. Through sheer force of personality, John Lennon changed others' lives, and many went willingly on the journey. For Paul McCartney, who had a fundamental need to be noticed. Stepping forward with John was a natural move. He was aligning himself with someone people couldn't avoid and who thrust two fingers up to things in a way Paul envied, but could rarely do in full view. At the same time, Paul could apply gloss where needed to minimize John's trail of damage. Their musical group was formed in John's image and driven ever onward by his restlessness. But without Paul, he would have upset too many people too many times to make the progress they both craved. Paul's other strengths were his great talent, his burning ambition, and his high self-regard. 
and when John felt them becoming overbearing, he'd pull him down a peg or two, as only he could. And so Lennon-McCartney stood shoulder to shoulder as equals. Connected at every level, their considerable talents harmonized, their personalities meshed, their drive unchecked, their goal in focus. They were a union, stronger than the sum of their parts, and everything was possible. Okay. So although Lewison makes the very interesting choice to liken John to God, the Beatles were made in his image mm-hmm. and driven ever onward by his restlessness. Yeah. Paul, on the other hand, receives the following. Needed to be noticed, envious, can minimize damage. And apply gloss. Uh, great talent. That one's good. Yeah, that is the one unmitigated compliment. Yeah. Burning ambition, high self-regard, okay, and overbearing. Yeah. So the first strength we're told about is his ability to apply a gloss. Apparently, it's very important that he cleaned up John's messes. Yeah. Yeah, and he uh, essentially used John to get the attention that he craved. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's not just that Paul needs attention. He has a fundamental need to be noticed. Yeah, which doesn't sound good. Well, it sounds like he definitely was unable to be noticed until he attached himself to john lennon oh the way it's phrased stepping out with john was a natural move he was aligning himself with someone who Mm -hmm. effortlessly drew that attention to satisfy paul's fundamental need i mean that makes him sound mercenary like his friendship with john was a move that does not sound good yes well it it's the embodiment of like Pitching your wagon to somebody's star. Daphne, every time I read this passage, it gets worse, okay? Besides talent, Paul's other strengths were his burning ambition and his high self-regard. Yeah, well, and the way that's set up, the way he writes Paul's other strengths were, like reading that, you might conclude that this is a comprehensive list of Paul's strengths. Or at least that these are his greatest contributions to the Beatles. Gloss, talent, burning ambition, and high self-regard. Mm, yeah. What I really don't like about that is that Lewison is making the effort to single out and report several qualities of Paul's which are closely related to each other. Like fundamental need to be noticed burning ambition and high self-regard those are all very similar (laughs) sort of variations on a theme right yeah and he's willing to spell those all out like he's willing to take the space to say all of those three things but when it comes to what i personally would rank much higher on the list of paul's strengths namely his creativity his musicianship songwriting vocal prowess Lewison is instead content to let all of those be represented by a single word, 
talent. Mm. Again. Again. Like, if you're going to take the time to to parse out one aspect of Paul, like, why confidence? Why not talent? Yeah. I mean, talent is one of the great things about the Beatles, but they're also great because of their innovation, energy, personality, repeated self-reinvention, spirit, Mm -hmm. vision, audacity, and humanity. (laughs) Yeah. So if the Beatles are made in John's image and driven ever onward by him, then it follows that he must be the source of all of those things. Right. Those can't come from Paul McCartney because we were just told his greatest strengths, of which the only admirable one, by the way, was talent. Tune in definitely emphasizes Paul's attraction to John over John's attraction to Paul. Mm-hmm. The only thing that is attractive about Paul is his knowledge of music and his talent. He's a useful commodity. Yes, of course, John commented on on Paul's talents, but he also said that he dug Paul and that Paul looked like Elvis, which, excuse me, no, he didn't. I mean, I think that's lovely that John said that, but I think that betrays, you know. (laughs) Some love goggles? Yes. Yeah. It's the chemistry between them. It's the mutual chemistry and a mutual reaction. And it's just Mm -hmm. such a disservice, not just to Paul, but to the Beatles to Mm. turn this story of mutual excitement and mutual attraction into a one-sided pursuit of John on Paul's part. Yeah. Writing... Paul McCartney had impressed the guy on whom making an impression was suddenly so vital. This could just as easily have been framed from John's point of view. When he'd woken up that morning, John considered himself kingpin, with no one to disavow him of that belief. Now, all of a sudden, his world was rocked by this musical whirlwind who'd come out of seemingly nowhere. (laughs) His life would never be the same after Paul McCartney entered it. John Lennon said, Paul and I hit it off right away. That's a direct quote from him. It's in the anthology. Mm -hmm. And he said in the Hunter Davies bio that the day I met Paul was the day it all started moving. Mm -hmm. You know what else? Len Gary wrote in his 1997 book that both he and Pete Shotton Notice that John actually played better at the Quarrymen's next set that day (laughs) after he was introduced to Paul. I'm going to read from his book. So Len, Pete, and John go outside for a smoke, and Pete says to John, you know, John, I've never heard you sound as good as you did just then. I know you're going to say I'm not very musical, but I could hear the difference. I could see something's happened to you. And then Len agrees and says, yeah, John, I, I noticed too. John was silent for a few minutes, just enjoying his smoke. He says, I guess someone took the trouble to share what he knew with me, and it's just given me a little encouragement for the future, that's all. Oh. And then Pete ribs him and is like, oh, you're getting sentimental. (laughs) (laughs) And John's like, shut up, you know. (laughs) So John is instantly inspired by Paul just after their first meeting. That's amazing. 
And then, according to Len, on the walk home, John asked Pete Shotton what he thought. And <laughs> Pete, you know, who's not excited about Paul McCartney coming into his life at this moment, pretends to not know what John's asking him <laughs> and says, think of what? Oh, you mean how the day went? Pete said, knowing all the while that John was referring to Paul McCartney. Pete answered the real question. I think Paul seems okay. He's pretty knowledgeable about chords, words, and the like, but I got the impression that he was a bit of a show-off, you know, playing the guitar around his back like that. Well, I didn't think he was pushy, John replied. He was just <laughs> showing me what he could do. That was all. If that's being pushy, then I'm glad that he was. Oh my God. <laughs> okay, so John is immediately defending Paul to his own best friend. And John wanted Paul in the band after one meeting. One. Yep. One informal meeting backstage. Think about that. Paul didn't ask to join the band. He didn't audition. I mean, maybe he was privately hoping he would be invited, but he wasn't auditioning. And he didn't right. offer to join. John pursued Paul. Which is exactly how John himself told it. 13 years later, in his last week on this earth, he said, the only initial move I ever made was bringing Paul McCartney into the group. Sounds like Paul McCartney went in and changed the trajectory of John's life every bit as much as John changed Paul's. Yes. Why can't we have that story? There are only a handful of witnesses to this first meeting of John and Paul. Mm -hmm. There are only a handful of quarrymen. So why would you not use the firsthand testimony of one of the quarrymen? So none of those quotes from Len Gary are in tune in, to be clear. Correct. Len Gary is the one and only quarry man, rather than Paul's friend, Ivan Vaughn, who is never quoted in tune in. Pete Shotton, Eric Griffiths, Dufflo, Rod Davis, Colin Hanton, Ken Brown, Bill Smith, and Chaz Newby are all quoted directly and or thanked in the credits chapter where Lewison lists his interviewees. Oh, is Len dead? No, he was alive in 2012 and he wrote a book and he's still kicking around as of airtime. He did an interview for Isle of Man Today magazine last July. As a matter of fact. Oh. And I, honestly, like, I don't even care if, if in Lewison's mind's eye, he centers John because John is the one that he's attracted to. That's right. fine. Of I course. don't care. That's great. Yes. We all have our favorites. But if you're claiming that your book is the definitive biography of the band, then you have to be faithful to their perspective and how they experienced it. So, to recap, Paul is talented, smart, funny, and a naturally gifted musician. Also, I guess, ambitious with a high self-regard. And sharp, mentally strong, 
rarely outmaneuvered. Hmm, a good chess player. I suppose. His talents include producing fantastic or exceptional music. For a young teenage beginner. Well. And doing an amazing impersonation of Little Richard. But John is exceptional. John is sensational. He's a true original. He's an artist and a poet, a perpetual high-wire act. He is the lone wolf that yeah. no one can take their eyes off of. The life force that everyone is drawn to. The lone ranger that every boy he meets will gladly follow. You know, he's the star of the show. He's also the hero, the good guy because he's honest, generous, trustworthy, loyal, faithful, tender, and sincere. But that doesn't mean he's a wimp. Mm -mm. He's tough, abrasive, rude, sarcastic, and edgy. He is just the best. He's fascinating, he's complex, but he's also extremely lovable. Daphne, remind me, what were the virtues ascribed to Paul in these passages? Oh, none. He wants people to think well of him, but we're not told of anything he does to deserve being thought well of as a person. Huh. Okay, well, back to John. He's the heart. He's the engine. He's the reason you're reading this book. He's the reason the Beatles happened. He's the mm -hmm. reason for everything. Yes. He's the reason for the season. So, Daphne, why does this matter? Listen. Everyone has preferences. Everyone has favorites. There's nothing wrong with that. So, does it actually matter if a biographer is personally much more excited to write about one subject over all others? Well, not if the writer makes the effort to curb their bias and to treat all the subjects equitably. In other words, not if the reader can't tell who that favorite is. <laughs> but in TuneIn, you can definitely tell. Yeah, and it's not just a matter of Lewison having a clear favorite. It's the fact that he blatantly, unreservedly, pours far more effort and enthusiasm and love into the way he writes about John. Treating John as the most fascinating, complex, compelling, and important character in Tune In tells the reader that's what John is. Not as the author's opinion, but as a fact. All right, Phoebe, are you ready? Are you ready for the devil's advocate? I am always ready to face the devil. I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> Not today, Satan. I <laughs> love that about you. Go ahead. What if? Lewison is just basing his own writing choices on the first-hand quotes he took from insiders and witnesses. <laughs> TuneIn does contain way more complimentary quotes from other people about John than it does about Paul. So if Lewison's research revealed a huge disparity between how the two were viewed by others, he has no choice but to report that. <laughs> if hardly anyone has anything nice to say about Paul, if all anyone Lewis interviewed wanted to do was talk about John, then what is he supposed to do? His hands are tied. 
Well, I'm so glad you asked that, Dumpty. So number one, if that's the case, Lewison absolutely can provide nice quotes about John, and that is a-okay. Mm -hmm. He can even comment in the text about how much more popular John was amongst his interviewees. That may indeed influence his own personal opinion of the famous subjects he's writing about, but it does not release him from the duty of giving them equal time and attention in the mm. definitive history of the Beatles. I'm not reading the definitive history of the Beatles simply to find out which Beatle was most lovable. Okay, I am reading to hopefully discover insights about these artists and their work and to see events from their point of view or when those points of view diverge from their respective points of view. But nobody needs the text of this book to hand out a Best Beatle Award. Readers can make their own choices about that. Or not, if they don't care to. Yeah. Number two, one only has to look so far as The Lives of John Lennon by Albert Goldman to see how editing and author editorializing can shape a narrative. Goldman's research is publicly available, and the events in his book have been largely validated, even by Lewison himself. But Goldman's writing choices, along with his selective editing of other people's testimony, painted John in the most unflattering, unforgiving way possible. So authors absolutely can, and do, tell stories of their own choosing. And they include or omit information that supports what they want to convey to their audience. Yes. We have to remember, Lewison chose whom to interview and which quotes to use or exclude, just as any author does. As we pointed out just now, Len Gary alone, out of all the 57 quarrymen, <laughs> was completely ignored for whatever reason. We don't know why. Obviously, we don't have access to Mr. Lewison's interview notes, but there definitely are plenty of quotes from plenty of people about Paul that are positive, interesting, and revealing. We will share those throughout the series in every episode as appropriate, and then we will have a dedicated episode at the end of the series with many more quotes that will help bring Paul McCartney into clearer focus. Because it definitely matters where you point the camera and who's standing in the middle of the frame. It definitely matters who the protagonist of the story is. And as we've shown, Tune In most decidedly has one. What's particularly troubling about this is that whoever has conflict with the protagonist becomes an antagonist. That means that since John has already been established as the star of the Beatles story, if there is internal conflict within the band, or any conflict for that matter, we should expect Tune In will guide us to side with John. Which, of course, raises the possibility that whenever there is conflict between Lennon and McCartney, for example, which we all know there will inevitably be, McCartney will be cast in the role of antagonist. Right. 
Now, that's just a possibility at this point. Will it actually be the case? That is something we'll have to evaluate. <laughs> what have we gotten ourselves into? <laughs> the sun is fading away. That's the end of the day. As the June light turns to moonlight, I'll be on my way. Thank you for listening to Another Kind of Mind. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast series, Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. For supplemental material on fine tuning, visit our website at anotherkindofmind.com. There you will find our word count graph, related lists and photos, notes on all of our episodes, and a complete playlist of the many fabulous songs featured in fine tuning. Want to discuss fine-tuning with other ACOM listeners? Got thoughts, questions, disagreements? Marriage proposals? You can find and follow us on social media. We also have a discussion group on the old Facebook that listeners can request to join. You can also email us at acompodcast at gmail.com. Our podcast is a labor of love. We make no money from advertisers or patrons. But of course, the absolute best way to show your support is to recommend ACOM to others. Like and share us on social media. Post our episodes in your online forums and chats. Send links to your friends, kids, grandparents, dog. Tell that cutie at the record store about us. Mmm, what a great icebreaker. Bring it up to the bartender next <laughs> Friday. <right. laughs> Tell the moms at PTA. ACOM will improve your sex life is what we're saying. <laughs>